Hello, investigators. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thank you for joining me today for our first episode of our New York State of Crime season. Today, Done and Done covers the lethal love triangle and the gruesome murder that sent shockwaves from Long Island to Wall Street when in October 2001, multimillionaire investment banker Ted Ammon is found slain in his East Hampton home. There is no crime in East Hampton, not like this. There has not been a murder in two decades in this quiet seaside hamlet. Ted's murder and the pending investigation will dominate the headlines statewide for years as suspicions arise that Ted's estranged wife, Generosa Ammon, and her not-at-all-discreet lover, Danny Pelosi, were in fact the instigators and perpetrators of this crime. Dominic Dunn covered this case in Season 7 of his Power, Privilege, and Justice, originally airing in February of 2005. Our coverage today on Dun and Dunn comes to you from this particular Power, Privilege, and Justice episode, as well as many other journalists and authors who have followed the narrative of this grisly crime through its timeline, including Michael Schneerson for Vanity Fair, Lydia Warren for the Daily Mail, Business Week, as well as Newsday. All sources for this episode can be found on dunanddun.com if you are interested in further reading about this case. Ted and Generosa started so much in love. How does it all go so terribly wrong? Let's investigate. Theodore Ammon, Ted, our victim in this tale, Ted is a middle-class kid from East Aurora, New York, a town outside of Buffalo. Ted attends Bucknell University, a small liberal arts college in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and by all accounts is a young man who is going places with his head on his shoulders. Ted joins the fraternity Phi Gamma Delta, commonly known as Fiji. Ted plays lacrosse at Bucknell, along with being pretty serious about his studies. To illustrate this point, something truly remarkable here, Ted will pass both the United States and the English bar exams without the benefit of having attended law school. Ted does graduate from Bucknell University with an economics degree and moves back to New York. He works at two different law firms at this time, but will find his star lined up at exactly the right time for the Wall Street 1980s frenzy that is about to happen. Ted will start a new gig at Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts by the time that he is 30. Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts, also known as KKR, is a huge Wall Street firm specializing in leverage buyouts. Not only is KKR at the time enormously successful, Ted is leading the charge for KKR's success. So successful is Ted that he is named a partner within a few short years, And Ted is orchestrating the leveraged buyouts now sweeping across Wall Street. There is a first marriage, which after nine years crumbles, leaving a 33-year-old Ted in 1983 looking for a new place to live. Enter into the scene Generosa Loray. Generosa doesn't have it easy as a kid. 
Generosa and her older sister are raised by their single mother, a church secretary, who claims that Generosa is the product of a fling with an Italian sailor on holiday. Sadly, the girl's mother passes away when Generosa's 10, according to Generosa of brain cancer. After the passing of her mother, Generosa and her sister are taken in by various family members until they are then bounced out to foster homes, which are often abusive. Generosa's older sister is her anchor. And sadly, when Generosa is 17, that sister is killed by a hit-and-run driver. Generosa enrolls at the University of California at Irvine and will separate herself from her abusive foster family at this time as well. Once she graduates in 1981, is going to pack it up and head to New York City to begin manifesting her dreams. The very first step to that, see, Generosa wants to conquer the art world. She is an artist in her heart. But a girl has to pay the bills, and Generosa begins working as an apartment agent, which is the very bottom, most entry-level gig there is in real estate, but it does leave Generosa time to work on her art. Bringing us to 1983, where Ted, looking for a place to land post-divorce, makes an appointment with Generosa to look at an apartment on the far east side of Manhattan in the low 90s. Ted, who's a busy guy, makes this appointment for after a work day, and no telling what happened at KKR that day to distract him, but Ted forgets the appointment, just slips his mind. Ted thinks nothing of it until the following morning, when an irate Generosa calls his office very angry. Angry up one side and down the other, she goes, about him wasting her time and how dare he stand her up in a neighborhood that is unsafe after dark. Ted, for his part, really likes her moxie and ends up asking her out on a date. He figures he can take her to dinner, smooth it over, but wowza, when Ted shows up for the dinner date, here's Generosa a trim, blonde, stunner of a woman seven years younger than Ted. Ted is hooked. Generosa is fiery and passionate and really isn't into real estate. She tells Ted about her artistic dreams. It is not recorded what Generosa thought exactly, but clearly the shrewd, sharp soul that she was. Generosa must know that Ted is quite a large fish that she can wriggle onto her hook. The couple dates for three years, falling in love, and they walk down the aisle in February 1986. They'll live on Fifth Avenue at 75th Street. They also have a townhome on East 92nd Street between 5th and Madison Avenues. The funding of these properties is largely helped along by the enormous amount of cash that Ted cleared in 1988. Ted is one of the key players in the leverage buyout of RJR Nabisco which shook down somewhere around $26 billion. So money, not a problem. Homes, not a problem. Ted, beyond being kind of a brilliant dude, really likes jazz, and he likes the art of the deal. And right now, he's pretty content to indulge his pretty impassionate wife. This is from Michael Schneerson's Vanity Fair piece. Freed to indulge the love of her art, Generosa created wall sculptures from disparate materials such as paper and string. Soon they filled the walls of the townhouse. Unfortunately, a former friend says no gallery in the city volunteered to exhibit them. Quote, she never did get her art shown anywhere, one observer recalls. 
Still, her husband bought her an enormous loft on West Broadway in Soho, where she could pursue her avocation. She would play the role of downtrodden artist, the former friend recalls. But she was in this glorious double loft with windows all along the side. It was like Marie Antoinette with her sheep. Generosa mingled with other downtown artists such as David Rowe and John Censor and often invited them up to the 92nd Street townhouse for dinner. On the one hand, she wanted to be part of this artistic group, says the friend, but she also wanted it known that she was the wife of a rich guy and could pull strings. This person adds, I always found it strange that for a couple who was their age and with their money, they had this need to create a group. It was as if they didn't have any real friends. They were always saying, invite over anyone you want. Increasingly, friends say, they noted disquieting behavior on Generosa's part. She got angry, it seemed, at the slightest provocation. Usually, what set her off was the suspicion that someone was betraying or rejecting her. The minute she felt that rejection, the former friend recalls, she was like a woman out of control. A fear arose in her. It's almost like there was a trigger. When that happened, Generosa was not a pleasant sight. We've all been upset, says the friend, but when she does it, Physically, she's in your face with this kind of, I'm going to get you, and there's no talking to her. So the couple is losing friends, or Generosa is losing friends for them, and maybe the cracks in the marriage are beginning to show. This friend spent a lot of time wondering why Ted endured behavior that seemed to be becoming so manipulative and controlling. I think because there was a vulnerability to her which he could see, and that made him feel more secure. Ted described life with Generosa to another friend as walking on eggshells as he tried to avoid the next explosion. Generosa will really get into horse riding for the next few years, competing and winning some ribbons. And the couple is working on starting a family as well. Unfortunately, they're not having much success with in vitro fertilization, but 1992 is a real big year. First, Ted stuns his partners at KKR by announcing his departure from the firm. Ted wants to go indie and start his own firm. He will check out of KKR with around $50 million. Second, The couple head overseas and adopt two toddlers, twins, a brother and a sister from Ukraine. This adoption is fraught with complications and problems, but the children are welcomed into the home. The third thing that happens in 1992 is that the couple will acquire a bit more property. Ted and Generosa will buy a home in the East Hamptons at 59 Middle Lane. A cool $2.7 million buys the property for the one-story home owned by a blue-blooded family related to W. Avril Harriman. Home renovation promptly begins, and now by the end, the home is a gabled, two-story, six-bedroom, English country-style manor home. There are years and years of additions and renovations and, well, changes, a, a lot of changes. Generosa is not very kind to her contractors at all. Many recall getting stiffed on bills as well as abusive behavior on her part. Again, from Michael Schneerson, from his fantastic 2005 Vanity Fair piece. Like Gibbons, landscaper Peter Cicero let the lure of a big new client lead him to start his own business and came to regret it. One day, Cicero went with Generosa to the nursery to choose tulips. 
Now, you know, tulips look one shade in the morning light, he says, and a different shade in the evening light. Cicero planted 600 tulips of the shade Generosa chose. He said that weekend he drove up to find her in the garden, quote, her hair all in a mop, unquote, pulling out the 600 tulips like a wild boar. They were the wrong shade, Generosa declared. Cicero claims he was ordered to pay for the tulips himself or else. She was always invoking Scadden Arps, her law firm, recalls one contractor. Cicero says he had to pay for the yellow roses that Generosa ripped out along the front fence, too, because their shade was wrong. And he had to remove the trees he had planted by the front door, also at his own cost, when Generosa learned they didn't grow red berries. Once, Cicero says, Generosa called his bookkeeper at 5 a.m. to rant about bubbles in the pool. What's wrong with them? The bookkeeper asked groggily. Generosa shouted, they're blowing the wrong way. Another contractor had similar problems with Generosa, but tried to see her better side. Quote, she did have vision, and she was genuinely creative, the contractor says, remembering in particular the mosaics she designed in the bathrooms. I sort of admired her as a woman. She was really powerful. Still, that power could be scary. One time when she was angry at me, she told me that my mother died of insanity and that she had to struggle to be where she was and that she would be damned if anyone was going to take that from her. Oh, I can't forget to tell you about another property they have. The couple will also head across the pond and acquire a manor home in Surrey called Coverwood House. Coverwood House is honestly kind of a castle. It has 65 rooms and will cost a cool million dollars a year just to maintain the home. They have a lot going on. Castles, children, and tulips aside, by 1999, Ted's independent firm is enormous and is taking in about $2 billion a year, which means it must be time to sell, which Ted does for an enormous amount, leaving him working in a tiny spinoff company doing what Ted loves doing most, scouting for deals. Also, by 1999, the marriage has gone off the rails. The couple, when they are seen together, fight publicly. They do have plenty of homes, so they are not always residing together. But when they announce that the whole family is going to pack it up and move permanently to their Coverwood home in Surrey, it is very much viewed as an attempt to reunite the two and repair their marriage in order to keep the family intact. Generosa and the kids head to England. She begins to set up house. Ted stays in New York to complete the sale of his independent firm and handle the sales of properties in the city. Also, Ted is having an affair with a woman described as an older Gwyneth Paltrow lookalike. Lori Finkel is an attractive blonde banker who met Ted in the early 1990s, where they became, her words, quote, intermittently romantic, unquote as Lori will testify in court in 2004. It is an on-again, off-again relationship, and there is also a pregnancy for Lori at this time, which is rumored and then later, mostly confirmed, to be the child of Ted Ammon. Generosa in Surrey gets wind of Ted's adultery and possible child and immediately sets to hiring a private investigator to, well, investigate these rumors. 
Sure enough, Ted is fooling around with Lori, who honestly does leverage buyouts too. She has her own home in the Hamptons. She makes millions of her own dollars a year. Lori also has a boyfriend and some kids, but Ted and Lori do have something between them that goes on for quite a long while. Lori is described by many as the anti-Generosa. The real Generosa hightails it back on over to New York City in the summer of 2000, and, well, investigators, it's not too much of a stretch from the beginning of this story to now to assume that Generosa is mad. She's big mad. She is going to return to their home, find all of Ted's clothes, throw them out, and set them on fire. After that, Generosa will file for divorce and begin to seriously undertake getting an answer to the question of exactly how much her husband was worth. She thinks it's in the range of about $300 and Generosa, for her part, wants as much as she can get for her hurt, her grief, time and trouble, I suppose. Ted wants an amicable divorce for himself, for Generosa, for the kids. His legal team will provide over 45,000 pages of financial records and discovery. Ted isn't hiding anything. Ted just wants out. A lot of those assets are in the stock market, and the stock market in 2000 was pretty volatile. And it becomes challenging to make a real assessment of Ted's net worth on any given day. But Generosa has no such qualms about the demands she is making for alimony, which include. $50,000 annually for the following, a bodyguard, a housekeeper, a chef, and a driver, $30,000 annually for a gardener, $100,000 a year for a personal assistant, $60,000 in residential maintenance, and that's just for her New York life and staff. The Coverwood Home in Surrey requests another $100,000 of maintenance a year. And on top of all that, Generosa is looking for about $180,000 a month for living expenses. Taking it all net value here, Generosa is looking at half of all the properties and wants about $2.5 million a year in addition to that. Oh, let me mention that Ted has also bought Generosa a new home. He will pay $9 million for a townhome just east of 5th Street also giving Generosa a million dollars for a renovation budget. In the meantime, as that home is being worked on, Generosa and the kids will move into the Stanhope Hotel on 5th Avenue at $1,500 a night just in the suite for Generosa. The children also have a room, the nanny also has a room, and there are at least two more rooms acquired for the out-of-town work crew members on the being-renovated townhome. Friends, we are talking astronomical figures of money here, but Ted, again, just get me out of this as quickly as possible. Not quickly enough for Ted's super bad luck here, as Generosa in the construction on that townhome is going to meet a real bad dude named Danny Pelosi. Danny Pelosi at the time is 38, kind of tall, kind of lanky. Danny is a married electrician with three kids from Long Island, and one of Danny's buddies is working on that townhome crew and will tell Danny all about the 
rich, estranged, blonde divorcee who is dishing out the cash like there's no tomorrow. And Danny, always a clever schemer, sees his moment to pounce, borrows a car, drives into the city, and manages to talk himself into a job with the crew. This feat is quite impressive as Danny is an unlicensed electrician with a history of drug and alcohol abuse, some arrests, and some volatile behavior too. Even more impressively, with this kind of background, Danny is the head of the crew and is also having a torrid affair with Generosa, which leads Danny into moving into the Stanhope Hotel with Generosa. These two spend $500 for breakfast. They give $50 to the bellman for walking the dog every time he does it. A hundred bucks for the driver who brings the car every time. They are drinking nightly in the Stanhope Hotel bar as well, tipping a hundred or two hundred dollars a pop. These two are spending Ted's money like it is water, with expenses running about seventy thousand dollars a month for their lifestyle. Danny is also still racking up DWIs in cars owned by Ted has improved his wardrobe into wearing $5,000 suits paid for by Generosa and is generally living the life of Riley. Ted, not really a happy guy. The budget for Generosa's townhome renovation has increased to $3 million as Danny, now the crew leader, has determined that the entire home needs to be gutted down to the studs. Ted is even more unhappy that Danny is around his kids. Ted leaves an event one day, only to come back aghast when he finds out that Generosa and Ted have taken off for a weekend in the Hamptons and left the children with the doorman as a babysitter. Generosa, for her part, is not enjoying her newfound romance quite as much as you might think. She is obsessed with revenge. She is constantly tearing Ted down to the kids, saying that Ted is spying on all of them. Ted becomes enemy number one. Generosa will install a nine-camera system in the Middle Lane East Hampton home to presumably monitor the property, but it also has remote viewing capability, so Generosa and Danny can spy on Ted from wherever they are. Very few people know the details of that system, Generosa and Danny being two of the very small number. Acrimonious might be too mild of a word for it, but as everyone in this divorce saga is doing their thing, they're headed to court, they're talking to lawyers, they're trying to negotiate. Finally, in mid-October 2001, a settlement is negotiated. A fair one, based on Ted's actual worth, no one here is lying to Generosa, and she is looking to collect about 20 to $25 million, including her own townhome at 10 East 87th, as well as a split custody agreement. Generosa is not pleased at all, but seemed resigned to take the deal. It is all agreed to. Paperwork is in the process of being drawn up to be signed at the beginning of the following week. Ted's friends say that Ted is one happy man. He is so thrilled to be done with these negotiations and looking forward to everything coming ahead for him. At the end of this week, Ted will meet with his ex-wife at the coffee shop in the Waldorf Astoria. 
Even though these two divorced 20 years before they remain close friends, Ted will tell her at that time, quote, that woman won't be satisfied until I am dead, unquote. Investigators, now it is a great time to take a moment to hear from the sponsors of Done and Done this week, to whom I am so grateful. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Saturday, October 20th, 2001, Ted Ammon's last day, will start out okay. He'll take a trip to his East Hamptons home for a nice quiet weekend, taking a little breather before that whole messy divorce is wrapped up early next week. Within his negotiation in the settlement, it is decided that Ted will keep the home on Middle Lane. Ted's mistress, Lori Finkel, is also in the Hamptons that weekend with her boyfriend and children. She will steal away for an hour or so at Ted's home to celebrate his happiness. She arrives at the Middle Lane estate about 2 p.m. After Lori leaves, she does receive a call from Ted where he tells her that the sheets for the bed are too hot and he's going to head out to buy a new set of sheets, which he does, a new set of Italian designer sheets. On the way home, he'll stop for a tuna steak and glass of wine at his favorite restaurant. Ted will call Lori about 10 o'clock that night, saying that he was at the beach. He thought it was a gay beach, there were some guys around, said he was scared and going home. Lori will try to call Ted later on that evening after everyone in her family had gone to sleep, but Ted doesn't answer. Lori's going to call the next morning as well, and after receiving no answer, Lori makes a secret trip to Ted's home with a friend of hers. Lori stays in the car, but Lori's friend will go up to the house where she sees Ted's car in the driveway and maybe Ted just took the dogs for a walk on the beach. Lori admits to returning to Ted's home again later that night by herself, although she does not enter the home. Ted misses a meeting, though, however, on Monday, and Ted, being known to sometimes flake out and forget about appointments he may have set, nobody worries too much about it. But the later in the day it gets, and with the children's nanny calling the office looking for Ted, because Ted has not called her to arrange pickup for the twins yet, Ted's colleagues are growing a little suspicious. Ted may flake out on a bunch of things, but Ted never flakes on his kids. They begin calling on multiple numbers. There's no answer at any number. Ted's business partner and his chauffeur take a helicopter from the city out to the East Hamptons to the home on Middle Lane. Ted's Porsche is in the driveway. They find Ted's three dogs in the home, but the dogs seem hungry and confused. Then they notice a trail of blood on the stairs. The pair proceeds to the master bedroom where the 52-year-old Ted Ammon is found nude on his bed, missing all bedsheets, his head bludgeoned. The call to the East Hampton Village Police is made at 5.19 p.m. Authorities begin investigating and the cameras at the home they find have been turned off. There is $1,800 in cash in a money clip on the kitchen counter. Burglary does not seem to be the motive. The gruesomeness of the crime, with almost three dozen blunt force blows to Ted's head, lead police to think that this crime is most certainly not a crime of happenstance. This is someone who knows Ted and does not want Ted alive. It is determined that the time of death was sometime late Saturday evening. 
Naturally, everyone in the Hamptons is talking. This is a high-dollar neighborhood with fancy private clubs and stars like the Spielbergs and the Seinfelds and rich people that live there, like a lot of rich people. Murder does not happen here. Authorities are keeping the investigation very close, so naturally, rumors run rampant. The first is that Ted was a closet homosexual, and this was a crime committed by someone he may have picked up on that gay beach. Maybe rough trade gone wrong. Not even so believable. If not, why not take the $1,800 on the counter? Ted's friends, in addition, vehemently deny any of this. Ted was not gay, not even close to being gay. So authorities continue to question, who would be Ted's enemies? I mean, Ted has played in high finance for a real long time, and Ted even testified for KKR against Michael Milken in the early 1990s. Ted may have plenty of business enemies, but could this be something more sinister? Naturally, suspicion falls to Generosa, the estranged wife. Generosa claims to know nothing about it. Cops are looking at her, as well as the 'er ne'er-do-well Danny, whose alibi was his sister, and a trip he makes to her home in the middle of the night about an hour and a half away from the Hamptons. The Saturday night time frame of death is also a little questionable, as neighbors hear the crunch of gravel on Sunday at the Middle Lane home. Ted Ammon is mourned by a thousand people at the Alice Tully Hall in Lincoln Center a week after his death. Ted is on the board at the Lincoln Center, and Wynton Marsalis leads an all-star jazz band in the music for Ted's service. Ted's sister has asked Generosa not to attend the service, although Generosa will attend Mass for her husband later that day, taking along Ted's ashes. Even in the days after this, Danny Pelosi appears in court for a September DWI charge in East Hampton, where detectives are looking to speak with Danny after his case concludes. They just would like to ask him about the security system in the home. See, no tapes or recordings were found there. Not only were the cameras turned off, but any and all recordings of what might have happened in the home are gone. Making it a little bit more suspicious, the mechanics for this system are hidden within the rafters of the home. And Danny really not staying out of trouble. It's not like he's not constantly in trouble as the police are investigating Ted's murder. Danny at one point is arrested for punching a crew member on a tour boat when the staff decides that Danny is at his limit and they will not be serving him any more alcohol. There is also a little charge of theft as well. Danny is accused of stealing $43,000 of electricity from the Long Island Power Authority. At this time, both Generosa and Danny pretty much lawyer up immediately. By mid-November, it is time for the reading of Ted's will, who had not quite gotten around to changing it. Leaving his widow, Generosa, his entire estate, less a financial gift to his children. The date of this will is August 22nd, 1995, back when times were much happier for the couple. Because the final divorce papers had not been signed, now Generosa possesses Ted's entire estate and all of his real estate holdings tax-free. 
This is actually not what earns Generosa her nickname of the Merry Widow in the press. That is, in fact, her outlandish behavior with Danny all over town. These two spend even bigger amounts of money. And what really sends tongues wagging is their wedding. Generosa marries Danny in January 2002, less than four months after Ted's murder and just one day after Danny's divorce from his wife is final. Generosa, when asked, will say that Ted got exactly what he deserved. Danny and Generosa will set up home in a reasonable three-bedroom, two-bath, blue-collar suburb in Long Island they obtain for about $800,000. Generosa, you see, is offloading her other real estate holdings at a rapid pace. As of October 2002, the co-op apartment at 1125 Fifth Avenue had been sold for $9.5 million. The townhouse at 10 East 87th Street had been sold for $8 million. The Coverwood House in Surrey, England sells for $7.5 million. There's commercial property in East Hampton also sold for $3.7 million. The two properties still on the market at that time are the house at 59 Middle Lane, East Hampton, which was listed for $10.5 million, as well as a condominium apartment on the Upper West Side listed for $900,000. With all of this scrutiny and press attention on the couple, Danny and Generosa will move to the Surrey, England Coverwood Estate, and there Danny is going to spend lavishly on cars, on boats, living like the Lord of the Manor, totally content to fly back to the States and take all his friends to Las Vegas for the weekend. It is on one of these trips back that Danny is detained at customs for skipping out on his DWI charges and actually serving the time he was sentenced to. His passport is suspended. Danny goes to jail, just keeps on talking to anybody who will listen to him. He really does like being the center of attention. Generosa and the kids come back from England, and during this time, by all accounts, whether Danny is in jail or out of jail, the couple is fighting a lot. Before Danny's incarceration this time, people report an increased amount of drinking, fighting, perhaps violence as well. There is most certainly trouble in paradise. It is troubling in May of 2002 when Generosa begins fainting and feeling in very poor health. Soon, Generosa is diagnosed with breast cancer and will immediately begin chemotherapy treatments. Danny is locked up at the moment, not to be released until June 2003, by which time Generosa's cancer is very bad. The following month in July 2003, Generosa will leave Danny and move into the Middle Lane home with her children and their nanny. Generosa passes away August 22, 2003, Eight years after the signing of Ted's will, Generosa leaves $15 million to each of her two children out of a completely dwindled estate. Danny has managed to blow millions. And much to Danny's dismay, Generosa has written him out of her $33 million estate, leaving Danny $700,000 in a postnuptial agreement as well as $2 million to cover possible legal fees. Perhaps Generosa thinks that this $2 million is going to come in handy for legal fees for Danny, as the cops are quickly coming to 
him for Ted's murder. But not before Danny can pick up Generosa's ashes at the Frank E. Campbell Funeral Home and take her ashes to the Stanhope Hotel Bar, where Danny will order a beer for himself and a Cosmopolitan for Generosa, her favorite drink. Danny will light a cigarette and perform a farewell toast. The photographer Danny summons for this occasion snaps an image of all of this that leads the headlines the following day. A few months earlier in 2003, back in June, there was a grand jury convened where over 60 witnesses are interviewed, all trying to give the goods on Danny, who has confessed to the crime, to his friends, to his jailhouse buddies. It is all pretty terrible. Generosa, before her passing, is even offered immunity from prosecution to testify against Danny. But Generosa does not go for the deal. Charges are formally filed in March of 2004 against Danny, where he is indicted. The month of August 2004 will bring the birth of Danny's son from his fiancée. The sad and terrible trial begins in October 2004, and by December 2004, Danny Pelosi is convicted of murder in the second degree for the death of Ted Ammon and is sentenced to 25 years to life. Good riddance to bad rubbish, I say, but Danny was not done. Danny wants to contest Generosa's will, although that goes nowhere. Danny will end up marrying his baby mama in prison, but wowza, dude is always in trouble. In September 2005, just a few scant months after his incarceration for murder, there is a 50-day stint in solitary confinement after a guard witnesses inappropriate conduct. In August 2008, Danny pulls a six-month stint in solitary again, this time for using personal identification numbers of other inmates to make unauthorized phone calls. In May 2009, there is another 30 days for phone misuse. This guy never seems to learn. Danny will be sentenced to yet another solitary confinement in 2011, this time at the Southport Correctional Facility in upstate Pine City. Apparently, Danny was making threatening phone calls to a woman back in November of 2010. The inmate misbehavior form says the woman contacted the Elmira Correctional Facility to report that Pelosi left a voicemail on her cell phone threatening her and telling her, quote, this is the last vacation you'll ever take, unquote, and I'm sending some people over to your home, unquote. Danny, still today, is protesting his innocence loudly from jail with anyone who will talk with him. His story is that he's a good guy and stood by his wife and that it was totally Generosa who committed the crime or maybe even this other guy. As of 2017, Danny Pelosi was in Attica and not eligible for parole until October 14th, 2031, when Danny will be the age of 67. As for the beloved children of Ted Ammon, when Generosa passed away, their nanny, Catherine Maine, was appointed as the children's legal guardian. Catherine was also bequeathed a life interest in the East Hampton Middle Lane home. In 2005, custody for the kids was awarded to Ted's sister. Those twins, Greg and Alexa, do grow up and talk with Katie Couric in 2012 about their experiences. About the position that they were put in 
as children between a very kind father and a mother at war with him, Alexa tells Katie, It's hard to know that the last thing you said before your dad died was that you hated him. Greg will explain to Katie, There were times if we weren't awful to our father or spying on him or going through his drawers, mom would be really awful to us back home. Alexa will add, She just hated the fact that we loved our father that we loved a man she didn't love anymore. In regard to Danny Pelosi, Alexa will say, to have somebody in our life who was more concrete, more permanent was great. When our mom was telling us, this is the man you should love, it messed with our minds. But the twins admit that they were not convinced that he was a killer until he was convicted. Alexa said that she had doubts up until that point. I was so convinced he was innocent. I don't know what he did to my mind. He is a psychopath. Greg will move to L.A. and start a film production company. Alexa, for a while, will manage a band in South Carolina. But the brother and sister do come back together to make a film called Middle Lane in 2012. They set out to investigate their biological family. They discover that they were the result of a one-night tryst between their mother and a soldier. And once born, both were quickly taken by the government after their birth. Their birth mother was a destitute sex worker who struggled with alcoholism as well as mental health challenges. Their biological mother passed away in 2004, leaving behind a total of eight children, many of whom went to the same orphanage as the twins. They also discover through their research that Alexa had tuberculosis. At this time, the disease was not treatable in Ukraine there in the early 1990s. Greg said, our parents saved us. Alexa would not be here if it was not for our mom and dad. They literally gave us life, Alexa will add. It is an amazing thing. For as much as is solved about the murder of Ted Ammon, there are still many questions that linger. We will never know the real role Generosa played in orchestrating the killing of her estranged husband. Was Danny Pelosi her convenient patsy or the primary player behind the event? Could it be a combination of both? It is truly tragedy all around. A beloved father and generally pretty wonderful man is dead. A young mother is dead. And kids are left behind to deal with the aftermath of a deadly divorce. Investigators, thank you so, so much for listening today to Done and Done. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of A New York State of Crime. And friends, until we meet again, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends. 